0: Hello, I'm Laura Scales, a dedicated arts facilitator, career counselor, and the CEO of Living Arts Detroit. Join us as we chat with both experienced and emerging artistic professionals who have ignited their creativity and shaped their careers to thrive while living in the arts. Today's interview is with Katie Vanderbach, a vice president of content strategy at Dot Dash Meredith, novelist and screenwriter, Her driven, get-it-done attitude along with her sense of humor and vulnerability has me learning something each time we speak. We are going to learn about her path into creative writing, content strategy, and her relationship with the writing process. One takeaway I can offer you already, simply hide and let it breathe. For more, stay tuned. All right, let's just get right into it. Hi, Katie. How are you?
1: Good. How are you?
0: Oh my gosh, I cannot complain. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's been a long time and I'm excited to introduce our listeners to you.
1: You ready to dive in? Sure. Um, I'm Katie Vanderbalk. I am the VP of content strategy for Dot Dash Meredith's uh, entertainment and beauty group. And so Dot Dash Meredith is a publishing company. We own a bunch of websites. Uh, The ones that I work with are websites like People Magazine, uh, InStyle.com, Birdie, um, Brides, Entertainment Weekly. Those are the main ones that I work with. And I've worked here for seven years almost. But I am also primarily a fiction writer. And that is what I do at night and on the weekends while I work this job that I love very much from nine to five.
0: Incredible. First, I wanted to start off with a good thing, bad thing, and I'll go first. So my good thing is that I get to talk with y'all on the podcast and that I am in the midst of getting my house cleaned oh my and God. reorganized, and it's been such a harrowing process, but I feel so much better with a clean house. So that's my good thing. And then my bad thing is that we have to replace our hot water heater, oh no Uh, it's gonna be great once
1: it's done but for right now it's like oh my goodness that is like very challenging that would be my worst (laughs) nightmare um so my good thing bad thing um My good thing is that I've been learning to skate and I'm going to try out for a roller derby team and I don't think I'm going to make it. And that's not part of the bad thing. It's actually like part of the good thing is that like, I actually am now a very good skater, uh, but there are like women out there who are so good and like, so inspiring and like inspiring me to reconnect with my body and like my athleticism, um, The bad thing is that I sprained my wrist uh, pretty severely while um, learning to skate. Uh, But the other good thing-ish is that the doctor says I can keep skating, quote, as long as I don't fall on it. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. I did have wrist guards on when I made the sprain. It definitely would have been broken, like, in a serious way if I didn't. I was skating backwards to the Olivia Rodrigo album. I should... Say and I skated over like a storm drain on a basketball court, Aww. and my wheel got in the drain, and so I just like went flying. It wasn't a normal fall, um, so I have not really fallen on it, and I'm continuing to skate, and I'm really enjoying it. And I guess the bad thing is that I am afraid that this could get worse. Yeah, <laughs> um, I to fall on it again, but I'm just pressing on and being careful, and yeah. I am
0: really glad that you were wearing your wrist guards and that you didn't break your wrist, especially because you're a writer. So I cannot imagine. Well, let's get into the let's get into the podcast. Sure. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got into the arts and what your path has been that has led you to where you are now?
1: Sure. Um, So I think as a kid, you know, I was like reading Lemony Snicket like everybody else. And I thought this would be so fun to, like, write my own book one day. And as, like, a kid, I was, like, pretty good at school and um, pretty self-confident, you know, until, like, puberty when (laughs) everything went wrong. Uh, And so I just sort of assumed that I would do it and that, like, if I had the time and space and, like, once I was a real adult, like, I would write a novel. And it was just this, like, inevitability that I thought at the time I've since learned, right, that, like, writing a novel is never an inevitability. It's, like, something that everybody, you know, has to work really, really hard at. Um, And I uh, wrote a bunch of, like, poems in high school and then in college. And I realized I was terrible at poetry. And all my poems were, like, little stories. And a poetry teacher was like, you don't like poetry. You like either writing about yourself or fiction. I don't know if these poems are about you. And because of that, I started writing prose. And it just sort of unlocked things for me, both like in my personal life and in my like understanding of what writing, what I, what it could do and what I wanted to do with the world. Like when I think about that time in my life when I was writing prose in like late college, I started reading like contemporary women writers um, for the first time, like Joanne Beard, like Mary Gateskill is like a classic one. Susan Choi is a huge influence. But yeah, so I started reading these contemporary women writers and they just like sort of reoriented my whole opinion about myself and like what a woman should be in the world. And I realized like I wanted to attempt to like offer that kind of Freedom and inspiration to other people, and that like maybe I had something to say. And so I started writing my own prose. Yeah. And so, how I got into the industry, like that's, I guess, my like emotional <laughs> life story. Uh, you know, writing, I'm sure, inspires us all. Probably why you're listening <laughs> to this podcast. Um, but I sort of realized that like being an emerging writer, or, like emerging as a writer means that you either make what you want and you can't make a living wage for a long time or like perhaps if ever. Like there are lots of people for various reasons who might not be recognized by mainstream publishing in their lifetime or ever. Um, and that isn't necessarily what it takes to like be a satisfied writer, but at the same time like you do need to make a living and so you have to find another way to live. Or on the flip side, You can write what other people want you to write, write what the market dictates, write what a job tells you to write, and then attempt to write your own stuff on the side. Or if you're so lucky, like, I work for these beauty brands and I read amazing personal essays about the beauty industry, amazing reviews, people getting connections. Like, if you want to write about beauty, if you, like, you know, in any capacity, having a job at, like, a beauty website is a really great way to hone your craft. But I wanted to write about fake things and (laughs) there is like no real way to do that from nine to five and then just like have it happen for you unless you know you're a production assistant. But again, even then, like you have to like work your way up into this like more creative job where you are the person with creative autonomy. And so- I first started writing um, when my first job out of college, I was ghostwriting for tech companies and tech CEOs and being like, when I wrote, when I wrote, coded my API, I didn't know like a single thing about tech (laughs) in any capacity. And I was like writing these like fake origin stories of like when I started my company in tech for these like mostly men, And working at this marketing agency, but I realized like, even though that wasn't really the kind of writing that I wanted to do, it took a lot out of me and it was very hard to write at night. And so I kind of used that job as a springboard into a job that um, was kind of like a big data SEO best practices job at Meredith, which has been fantastic. And, you know, I've really grown in that position the thing that made me pretty good at it was that I knew editorial skills and I knew enough to like marry technical specifications and like what an artist or a journalist like would bring to the table and like what they'd want and so my job sort of became instead to train writers and at that point that was when I like was able to return to my own writing and say okay at 5 p.m I'm gonna sit at my desk uh, and keep writing. Or um, I have this really amazing colleague and she would stay really late and she'd be like, wow, you're staying late next to me. Like you're working so hard right next to me on this work that we're doing for our <laughs> company. And I, she knows this, but I had to go hide from her in the breastfeeding room. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, no, I, I'm going to go write my fiction. Like it's 5 PM, but like I need a desk to sit at. And so that was when I um, started really seriously Working on my novel.
0: Incredible. I,
1: I, I, always, yeah, I hope that answers the question. I know. It's no, circuitous.
0: It, it absolutely answers the question. I think it's always really wonderful to see where um, people's creativity leads them. And I love that it was a poetry teacher when you were young who was like, mm, this is great, but these are not poems. <laughs>
1: yeah she was like yeah no this is like probably not for you but she said it in a way that was like I didn't even realize she was insulting me until like many years later when it was already I had made the switch so that was like very deft work on her part
0: always exciting to see how like it starts right that first seed so how did you know that you were in this industry for the long haul
1: So I think there was, like, both the, like, emotional and the logistical component of that. I think emotionally writing was very healing for me during, like, a period of turbulence in my life, and um, when I was in high school, I experienced some sexual trauma, and I You know, like a lot of these things existed in a very gray area. And I always assumed, like, for the like the next couple of years that this was my fault. And I was so unhappy and I was so frustrated and I was so angry. And I directed a lot of that anger like at myself. And I think it's Melissa Phoebos, who I was reading recently, and she talks about writing things that scare you. And she talks a lot about personal narrative and nonfiction. But she speaks a lot about how when you write things that scare you, you like learn about them and they don't scare you so much anymore. So writing about the things that like I assumed were my fault or that I told myself that all of the feelings that I was feeling, all of the bad things that happened to me, all of the fallout from those bad things were like all my fault. But actually when I put them down on paper, I found that I had like a lot of empathy for myself and the way that I behaved and, like, an understanding of, like, why a human person, in in this case, the human person was me, but, like, in writing, it doesn't always, it's, you know, it always doesn't have to be me. You have to write about other characters, too, even if they're characters in a story about you, even if you're writing nonfiction. But I learned about, like, why I would behave this way, why uh, I was feeling the way that I was feeling. And it was very very freeing, like I um, to know that maybe the things that I assumed were my fault weren't, and the mistakes that I made were very human. And like writing into those things that like scare you, I find it can be really terrifying. Like there are topics where I'm like, oh no, I can't write about that, or like this makes me feel ill inside. And when I'm writing it, I feel ill, and when I'm done writing it, I feel so much freer that I have, like, an understanding. I think it's a Linda Berry quote where she says that, like, therapy is an imitation of writing. Like, we, you know, we're making narrative of our lives. So I think that was, like, you know, junior or senior year of college solidified me as a writer, as a practice, and, like, the importance of this practice to who who I am and, like, what I want to put out in the world and how I want to shape the person that I want to be and how I want to try and touch other people from the things that I've learned like through my own lens. Um, Logistically, I thought I would go to grad school as like a way of, as a woman with ADHD, like adding structure to my life. And I was like, okay, in grad school, I have to write a thesis. That thesis will be a novel. I will leave grad school with a novel. Uh, spoiler, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did start in grad school. But, you know, grad school is a place for exploration. I think it would have been very silly to just write straight through a draft of that novel in grad school. Instead, I was like, what if I wrote a short story in second person or in future tense or like weird things like that, you know, like a lot of play. And so I left grad school with half a novel. And, like, the humbled understanding (laughs) that it is really hard to write a novel. And I'm drawn to really hard things. Like, I think at that point, both I felt like I had a story worth telling, that I wanted to get out in the world, and I felt really connected to this project, and at the same time, I felt like I, you know, invested the money in grad school, which is, like, I'm sure a topic we'll cover on this (laughs) podcast. Um, And... At the same time, I, I I'm drawn to hard things. I was like, I'm gonna finish this. Like, there's no reason why I can't finish this. It's actually, <laughs> it would be distressing <laughs> if I was like a person that just like wrote half this novel yeah. after grad school. And so I think there was also like my pride in that too. And so I completed the manuscript, and then I think at that point, you know, I when I felt good about the manuscript. And I'm somebody who like never feels good about anything I've written ever. I did not feel good about any discrete piece of writing that I'd ever completed probably until I was 23. And even then it was like one essay. Like I I would say anybody who's like in high school or college, if you like look at your work and you say, wow, like I am not sure about this, like six months later or a year later, or wow, I'm not sure if I wanna put this out into the world don't because like you know one day your ability will catch up to your taste and it like will happen and i feel like for me that eventually did happen where i felt like oh i wrote something that was pretty good like maybe i need an agent or an editor to take it the final oomph of the way but like this is this is pretty good this is like a, this is a real book it's like worth existing in the world it can sit on a shelf with other books. And so I don't know what my future will bring as an artist, what projects I will and will not finish. I've done other projects since then. um, And I'm in the process of trying to sell that novel, which is like a long, arduous and painful process. Not for everyone, but for me. Um, And yeah, but I can say that I feel like I I wrote the book. I stand behind the book. um, And I think that that, you know solidifies me in my goals. And so that is, I guess what I mean when I say, yeah, I, I'm in it for at least uh, that at least till tomorrow.
0: That's what my dad always says. I'm in it at least till tomorrow. And he's been saying that for like 70 years, Uh, (laughs) but I, I love that. I love the idea um, of writing as healing and freedom um and I, I read as healing and freedom. So, okay, I'm getting back to our next question. One of the goals on living in the arts is to share the many often unexpected paths into arts adjacent careers that folks might take. I know that you have a vast history in the arts, but also in data analysis and search engine optimization. Could you tell me more about how those things merged or didn't and how they contribute to where you are
1: now? Sure, I'll answer the how they've merged first. One is that I'm working on a second novel manuscript, and I just completed a feature screenplay with Josh Harris, who um, yes. also yes. Is in Chicago with me. Uh, he's fabulous. He also went to Columbia for uh, writing grad school, but for screenwriting, and. So the manuscript that I'm working on now, which, like, I hesitate to call a novel because I don't, you know, it feels like I'm cursing it because it's, like, not quite there yet. I don't know what the plot is. I just, like, feel like there's, like, something there. And the screenplay that I did complete with Josh Harris, both of those take place um, in an office. And when he and I were working on it together, he has actually never worked in an office in his life. And I would tell him all of these stories about like working in an office, how like people, you know, just like banal things, like how people say hi to each other at the coffee machine. Like, for example, all the things you know about people, like me asking my boss, like, how did your son do in his sailing tournament? And like the way that being in an office like gives you these personal relationships, but also they can end at any time, uh, both like at the discretion of the company And the discretion of the person. And you also should be, not just for you, but for the business, nicer to each other. And it's just so interesting to be like trapped in an office with a bunch of people. Um, And I really love my office and I love my job, but like it is interesting what patterns emerge when you see the same people every day. It's kind of like a high school. Like when I Mm -hmm. talk about it, Josh, he was like, I'm shocked by how much this sounds like high school, like you have a lunch table, you know, (laughs) I have like a clip, you know? Um, And that's like evolved over time. And my relationship to it has evolved over time. And so what I will say is having a job that is entirely unrelated to the arts is like very fruitful for um, just like thinking about the world and how it's, Mm. how it operates. Like if I never had this job, I think I would just, like, know a lot less about the economy and the way that it runs people's lives and the way that it, like, decides people's, like, circumstances and the way that people live. Uh, That's such a banal way of saying it. No. But um, I do think it's true. So that leads me into the fact that I think it's important to say that I feel my current job has absolutely almost nothing to do with creativity or the arts um, except for the skills that I bring relating to people who are creatives um, and understanding where they come from and figuring out how to negotiate that when it comes to um, making money. So like somebody could be saying... I want to write a personal essay about the Phantom of the Opera, which I love. And I did write a personal essay about the Phantom of the Opera that no one wanted to publish. And sometimes that happens. So, right now, my personal essay about the Phantom of the Opera, if this outlet has a really strong Facebook presence, if they have like a really good, committed newsletter, Maybe people will read my essay. Maybe there are enough Phantom of the Opera fans out there that will click on my personal essay. However, the Phantom of the Opera is not really in the news right now. It it already closed on Broadway. My personal essay that's written from my personal experience about my random, like, you know, on the grand scheme of things, insignificant life (laughs) is like not going to be distributed very well on Google and through like most algorithms and no one will see it. So unless there's, like, really an audience for that, I would say for the websites I work for, they should not pay me, say, $300 for that personal essay in terms of, like, we're talking sheer finance and numbers. Uh, That's, like, not the time. However, if somebody has that personal essay and they're like, oh, I wrote about the Phantom of the Opera, and we know it's closing in a couple of months, and we know it's going to be in the news, and Google will be looking at this as a trending topic— The phantom fans will be clicking on, like sending signals to the algorithm to show that they want more content about the Phantom of the Opera. That is the time to, uh, you know, pay somebody for their personal story because people are really hungry for it. And the robots that like govern (laughs) our media understand that. And so that's like kind of a silly, like circuitous example. But I think what I'm trying to say is that on a great day, I feel like I can help distribute people's passions and people's art. Um, and on a bad day, I will say, mm, that might not be possible right now." Or,, mm, probably no one will see this, but it's worth writing anyway. It's worth building an audience. Like it is worth saying like, okay, this might be like a niche issue for a niche community." That is not represented very well. And we want to get that conversation going about any number of things. If you want to get a conversation going, there are lots of reasons that you might want to distribute an article. But I kind of help decide which ones will make money, how to make sure that the most eyeballs get on them. And I don't really think of it as a creative profession. And so part two is like, you know, this involves some data analysis. This involves, I did end up SQL teaching myself how to code. What I will also say is that I took primarily creative writing and theater classes in college. I went to a college with a core curriculum, right? Because I thought in high school, I was like, I love math. Like, I just want to do more math. Like I'll probably major in English, but like what if I lose my math skills? Like that was so horrifying to me. And then I showed up and they were like, you placed out of math. You could take a really hard math or you could take this playwriting class. And I was like, this is a pretty easy decision. Amazing. (laughs) Um, And so I took like kind of like a record number of arts classes. I took, I think, 13 creative writing workshops and that did not like include the acting classes or, like, the directing or other things that I um, committed to, too. And so I just sort of, like, threw myself into the arts, which is to say that I did absolutely nothing that would qualify me for a job that uses Excel, that uses... (laughs) Um, that, you know, um, I got on my resume, when I got this job, um, I said I could use Excel. I showed up on my first day and my boss was like, can you do a VLOOKUP? And I was like, what's a V loop? Like, I don't, um, what I will say is that a VLOOKUP, uh, if you get yeah. it, will increase your earning potential by like at least $50,000. <laughs> that is like my advice to anybody who's like, do, they want to say that they know how to use Excel. Just learn how to do a VLOOKUP and like people will have to pay you more and they'll treat you like a wizard. Ooh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. So anyway, my point is just saying that following my passions and then a significant degree of luck, I'm not going to say that like I was not super lucky in the way that I fell into my job, but that following my passions and then being knowledgeable and like doing research before an interview or doing research about an industry, about how I could provide value to a company because I hopefully am a smart person. I believe in myself as a smart person (laughs) enough to get the job. But I think like I would say with your education, the advice that I would give to anybody is like to follow your passions. And if you don't feel like there's an internship out there that connects with your passions in the way that... I didn't feel like there was an internship or I couldn't get an internship that connected with my passions. I did a bunch of different things. I did some, like, PR journalism and things like that. And then I had this experience at the marketing agency. And after that, I think it was like a real wake-up call where, one, you always have to be thinking, how can I provide value to this company And I have my own dreams, and those are, like, separate things that I have to, like, make happen for myself. Mm -hmm. And then two, how can I do the research and let them know that in the interview? And so definitely a significant amount of luck that I, like, got such a great job that, like, has fostered me and my other interests. At the same time, I want to believe that that is possible for other people and that it's good advice. Yes. Well, I
0: think it's great advice. I think as you're kind of working on <laughs> the dedication to be able to work on your own stuff after you finish working on the thing that pays the bills for the moment, and then hopefully those two merge later on in your career is incredible. Fingers I did cro- want fingers crossed. It's happening. I know it's happening. You're a incredibly talented and intelligent and i'm excited to to have you back on the podcast to be like new york times best-selling author yeah what a dream i want to gear just a second towards the following can you talk to me about your master's degree in creative writing do you have any advice for people who might have have done a bachelor's and are looking at becoming writers or who might be starting this journey and really wanting to publish and, and write as their career?
1: Yeah, so I think I would say independently of whether you choose to go that route, I think feeling comfortable with being invisible. I think there was a quote from Michaela or something at the Emmys, like don't be afraid to go away for a while. I think that's like an ultimate act of self-confidence. And for a while, you know, I think I wasn't, maybe I was stalling on work I was producing because I was afraid or I, I didn't, you know, I was afraid I wouldn't tell the story correctly. But I think once you're really immersed in a project and when you're really working on it, don't rush it. Do it to the best of your ability, whatever that looks like. Don't be afraid to do the work and to produce work that you are proud of and that you can show to anybody without, like, most reservations. That doesn't mean, like, I want to show the sex scenes in my novel to my grandmother, obviously. Um, But, like, that you stand behind as a piece of art, that you believe that art exists for an audience, and that you want people who are in that audience or who know how to connect you with that audience to see this and to say, this is what I'm going for. The work speaks for itself. Maybe it's 95%, but I really stand behind it. Because the unfortunate truth for writers is that, you know, as in every industry, the people in the publishing industry are really burnt out, and they're tired, and they're underpaid. And an assistant for a literary agent was telling me that she reads all of her manuscripts at 5am because she doesn't have enough time in the workday to do that part of her job. If your manuscript isn't like grabbing her at 5am, it's going in the <sighs> trash ball. And so um like that actually made me feel like, okay, all of the rejections I've gotten, you know, like, yeah. um and when I think about books and publishers, like when a publisher says no to your book, it isn't because they didn't like reading your book. Think about all of the books that you've read and thought, that was a good book. I'm done with it. Versus books that you've said, I want to read that book eight times in the next yeah. year. It's like a real partnership where you're like in it with these people. And so in order to grab their attention, in order to do what needs to get your quality of work that you need to get your foot in the door of a writing industry, like don't be afraid to take that time. And for me, just, like, uh, knowing the kind of person that I am, I have ADHD, I, like, kind of need community and, like, built-in structure and deadlines. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was unmedicated. But then I, <laughs> I was, like, that's very the Yeah. if I have a <laughs> diagnosis and I'm trying to achieve my goals. And I've never tried medication, obviously. Um, and it really did change me. But that, that's back to grad school. Um, I knew I needed that structure. I also knew, so I finished undergrad at the University of Chicago early, and for my senior year, I did their math program, the Master's of Arts in the Humanities, where my undergrad scholarship carried over. I didn't want to, like, enter the workforce as a 20-year-old, and it's a master's program that um, most people come from, you know, around the country, and they pay for, And I saw a lot of people like have this master's program in the humanities. A master's program in the humanities or in the arts will rarely lead directly to a job ever. And that is what I will say, like, to anybody. It is not ever a path to getting like more gainful employment, unless the employment that you want is like academia, in which case that's like a very, very hard road. It's not like an MBA where you go. You get an MBA, you network, and then somebody wants to pay you more money than they wanted to pay you before <laughs> to like have you around. Yeah. Uh, next, maybe they want to pay you even less money. Oh, no. <laughs> Not a good joke. Um, but uh, it's yeah, it doesn't lead to like gainful employment. And I think I saw people like go on that journey being like, I expected, you know, I'm 23. I'm not 23, but these people were 23 at the time and they came out of college and they expected to feel like real adults and they expected to feel like somebody was ready to give them a job now that they had a master's degree. And that's like just not how it works. There were other people that felt like they studied something really intensely for a year and that the experience was rewarding and that it was like worth it. And so seeing a lot of people like go through that, I knew that if I got that master's degree, I had to go for what I would give me through the program rather than like what the program would hand to me. And Mm -hmm. so I knew that was structure. I knew that was like connections with professors when it came time to get a literary agent, which is like one of the big steps that you have to take before going the traditional publishing route um, with a novel. And it's, um, I could talk about that. Um, (laughs) but um i i did actually have like i was able to out of my top 10 literary agents i want to say that i had like at least a tenuous personal connection to five of them that got me out of the slush pile and into their inboxes that said the literary er, the literary agent that i ultimately signed with is a fantastic literary agent top tier she's amazing and I was just a random email to her. I didn't know anybody that had worked with her. At all. Amazing. And so I don't want to be like, oh, that, that got me my literary agent. But basically, for me, it was the structure, the connections, and like the community that was, and you know, the education, mm-hmm. uh, but the education through structure, the education through. I need to write. I need to get feedback on my writing. I need Mm -hmm. to be reading constantly books that are assigned to me so that teachers don't get mad at me. And then I will have read those books and I will have thought thoughtfully about those books. And so I knew that that was like what it would take for me to get my craft to the next level. But if you're a person that like is a really self-directed learner, there are lots of ways to learn those things. There are lots of places to find community, there are classes you can take that are not MFA classes. One of my MFA teachers, Lynn Steigerstrong, used to do, I don't know if she still does it anymore, but she's amazing. And her students, one of them sold their novel for like multi-millions of dollars. And it was fantastic. It was like a fantastic book. Um, but um, she does like a one-year novel generator with Catapult. Cool. Um, And it's, like, probably a couple thousand dollars. But a couple thousand dollars, like, there's financial aid, I think. It's, like, a drop in the bucket compared to, like, a grad degree at an institution of higher education. And so there are, like, these alternative paths. There are alternative ways to educate yourself. I would say that, like, if you have the structure to educate yourself and you feel committed to that structure, then you don't need a grad degree in the arts. But if you need structure and you need somebody else to define that structure for you and you trust yourself to get the most and to work the hardest within that structure and get what you're going to get from it and go on your own journey. And for that to be like the thing that shepherds you along your journey, then I, I really do recommend it. Also, I went to a grad school that you have to pay for. Not all of them you do. So like that, that's my, if you are ever paying for grad school, that's my advice. If you're applying to grad schools that are fully funded, those are just like giving you the time and space to write. They're extraordinarily hard to get into. And many people have to apply for many years in a row. Like I think Rutgers, um, Newark is a school I didn't get into. I think they take six students every year. The idea that I was not one of the six students of the thousand (laughs) that applied, like, you know, a professor has to, like, fall in love with you. Think about the statistics of, like, somebody has to be, like, utterly obsessed with you to allow <laughs> you into grad school. Like, it's not, like, a reflection yeah. of whether or not you will succeed as a writer. Um, but if you are lucky enough to get into an institution like that, then you have this wonderful paid, expenses paid time and space to write. And I yes. highly recommend that. And all of the wonderful structure that I just mentioned. I I worked yeah. full time throughout grad school. This is what I should say is I um, lied to my employer and my grad school and said that I was part time at both. I I joke oh. about this like a lot, so I'm not revealing anything to the world. They didn't notice. Like, oh yeah, I'm in night classes, <laughs> and I and then I was like, oh. I need to take classes only at night, Columbia, for reasons that I can't really tell you. Um, Yeah. And so I would just, like, go all day. And that was, you know, a short and intense period of my life. But also, you know, having a job that was um, in the tech-adjacent space, plus, you know, scholarship money and a small student loan allowed me to, like, live a manageable life. And like allowed me to do that in a way that has not placed an undue financial hard, like I'm not burdened with student loans in the way that somebody might be if they didn't have a full-time job, the whole. So it's all about your circumstances.
0: The circumstances and balance. I'm going to move on to a couple of our favorite questions. What media are you consuming now that's really exciting or inspiring to you? Okay, I have a bit of a crazy
1: answer. So, okay, uh, get ready. I love for this. crazy. Okay. I love cannibals. Oh. I love female cannibals specifically. Um, so, obviously, Yellow Jackets, the television show. I also loved the novelist Certain Hunger by Chelsea Summers, Ooh. another female cannibal, very intense. And then uh, Tender is the Flesh is another cannibal novel. Yeah. But, like, everybody's a cannibal. Um, It's, like, a dystopian society. But the reason I I have (laughs) – I keep repeating cannibals? Be cannibals. um, Is I think it's, like, so utterly audacious. I think the thing that as I'm getting older, I think I was, like, bored really easily as a kid. And if something didn't have, like, a really gripping – Narrative, I would be like, why does this even exist? And something that I'm experiencing now is like the fun of somebody doing something outlandish. Yeah. I feel like when I engage with a piece of media, I can feel whether the artist is like having fun or not in a way. And I care about that more than I used to. Like, do they want to put something new out into the world? Do they want to put something that like makes people feel something? Yeah. And I think so cannibals are not so fun in the way that I'm talking about. Like I would say that I just saw bottoms and I was mm. like, this was so much fun. And like, I loved its relationship to reality. I loved how it existed in this like world that was more of a teen movie world than like a world of actual teens. Like it followed like teen movie logic. Like they went to class and, like, they, you know, chatted in the way that, like, teens do before class in a movie. And then the bell rang and and one of the characters said, class is already over? I guess that's how this works, you know? (laughs) You could just, like, feel the fun of, like, these people were writing a teen movie. This is how we consume media. Like, it was so, like, tongue-in-cheek and so audacious. And obviously everything that happens in Bottoms, like, they really go there, And I think cannibalism is the drama version of really going there. Like almost nothing grosses people out more than cannibalism. And so especially when artists have women do it because women are, you know, supposed to be prim or like not interested in that. Certain Hunger is about like a female serial killer cannibal. And like, I think that that's really fun. Um, I love uh, Vladimir by Julia Mae Jonas, which is about a woman in the prologue She has this love interest named Vladimir, who's kind of this ordinary man. (laughs) And in the prologue, she says all these normal things about womanhood that are like very relatable, and like how like old men would like treat you really well when you're like a little girl in a white dress, and all these things. And I'm not saying it very well. And my writing is usually very realistic and not all that outlandish, but I have been really inspired lately. And who knows, maybe that'll change. That's
0: incredible. Other question. What advice do you have for young people or people who might have career aspirations to go into creative writing?
1: Ooh, I do think the biggest piece of advice is is still like, don't be afraid to like hide and do your writing and like, don't be afraid to let it breathe. I had a creative writing teacher who She published a memoir, she said, when she was 28. And she's like, and I cannot look at that memoir now. And it did well. Like, it was, you know, not a poorly received memoir. And she's like, I'm embarrassed of what is in that book. And I wish that I spent more time on it. And so I would say, (laughs) um, I would say, like, don't be afraid to, like, create work that you fully stand behind and you feel you feel matches your artistic sensibility and don't be afraid to refine your artistic sensibility but i would also say when i think about my younger self if i gave my younger self that piece of advice when i was like 16 or 17 or 18 kind of before i really started doing creative writing workshops in college but even then i was very afraid to finish things i was very afraid that it wouldn't be good. I was like paralyzed by the process and how nothing came out onto the page the way that it was in my head. I wouldn't have said that and I wouldn't have described myself that way. But I was like, wow, I've got so many good ideas. And like, I just don't have time for them, wink. You know, like I was making all these excuses for not working. And so I would say like, don't be afraid to hide, but be fearless and work and work hard and don't use that as an excuse. And you're not going to be improving if you're not working on your craft. Um, And that doesn't mean don't take breaks. That doesn't mean like, I certainly have gone through part of my, my job is really intense. This is like financial planning season. I do not write during the month of September. It never happens ever you know, it like does something bad to my body where I'm like a little bit squirrely. And I'm like, why am I so upset? And it's like, cause I haven't written at all. But at the same time, like my lifestyle would be unsustainable and unhealthy if I was writing in September. So, but then there are other times where it's like, it's 5.30 PM. I'm done for the day. I should set a 20 minute timer. And during these 20 minutes, I should work on my art. And if I feel inspired and I am so excited to keep going at the end of those 20 minutes, what a gift I've given myself. If my body is like, go home, eat, take out sushi, then that's like what I have to do. And like your body will tell you when you're done too, but your body will surprise you about what you can be excited for. And so I think my biggest piece of advice is like do the work. And it doesn't matter if you're doing the work in secret. It doesn't matter if you're doing the work and you're working for a publication and you're grinding out five to seven news stories a day, if that's like, you know, pushing you towards your goals, whatever that goal is, don't shy away from it. Do the work. You're not going to become the person you want to be, who has achieved the things that you want to achieve. Nobody's going to hand that to you because everybody is so tired Mm -hmm. and they don't have time for like, your 50% effort, they're only going to have time for your 100%. And then even then, you might have to write a whole another book. Like my novel might not sell. Or it might sell if I write a whole other novel and some editor who didn't read the novel this time is like, I want two books from you. Do you have anything else? Like there are lots of different ways that this like journey can go. And the only thing that I can control is doing the work. I was like a very externally validated person who was like obsessed with grades. And like, Mm. I was a runner. I was obsessed with my times. I was obsessed with like, you know. Measurable outputs. Yeah, (laughs) validation. And I do think that like only recently and only after finishing a manuscript, finishing a screenplay, Did I say, ah, you know, that actually was satisfying and I am proud of it. And I think that took me doing 100% of my effort and then having to be at peace with that. Obviously, like, there was, like, one big rejection along the way that really hurt. Like, you know, I'm not going to say that being an artist has no pain. Um, (laughs) But um, I guess my point is that, like, the ultimate act of confidence is believing in yourself, believing in your output, doing the work to make it happen. And like, if you believe that work is worthwhile, if you don't, you'll give up. And For if sure. you do, I think you'll feel okay in the end. So I guess that's what I'm saying is do the work. I imagine that's what every artist would say, but maybe I said something slightly more useful.
0: Hey, in all of you, you are the first to say it in that way. I think you're right. I love the idea about like, you can hide, but do the work. Katie, it has been so incredible to talk to you and learn all of these things. And I could talk to you for hours and days and weeks and months and can't wait for the day where we could do that um, some more, but we'll definitely have to have you uh, back on the podcast to learn more. So thank you for talking with all of our listeners today. Thank you for joining us on Living in the Arts and I'll see you
1: later. Thank you. This has been wonderful. It's wonderful to see your face and it's wonderful even just to remind myself of these things. And now I'm like, oh, I should go set that 20 minute timer instead of going right home (laughs) after work. All right. Until next time. Thank you, Katie. Thank Thank you. you. Living in the Arts is hosted by Laura Scales, with original music and editing by Jason Duran. It's produced by Claire Howe, and our podcast coordinator is Colin Shy. Living in the Arts is made possible in part by the MGM Resort Foundation and by donors like you. For more information about anything our guest mentioned, be sure to check out the show notes. To learn more and support Living in the Arts, please visit livingartsdetroit.org. Thank you so much for joining us and so much for listening.